and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. This week's guest, Russell Brand. People probably know him best as a comedian and an actor. But he's also somebody who really is interested in examining the ways that society is put together and sort of figuring out ways that it could be better or the ways that he could be better or like just talking about his journey through addiction and struggles. And he applies a very broad definition to addiction, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I picked up his new book, Recovery, and on the back of it, uh, I I have it right here, but on the back of it, he has the 12 steps uh, rewritten to be uh, sort of a little bit more to our modern ears. The first one is, are you a bit fucked? And it's something that just really grabbed me and spoke to me when I picked up the book and was just looking at it when I got my copy. And it made me think, you know, maybe there's maybe there's more to this idea that addiction can be centered in anything, and not just something that you have chemical dependency on, than, than I was willing to give it credit. I pushed back against this book a little bit, but by the end, I was, I was really into it. I think it's a very moving and human document. And uh, if you're interested in the way that Russell Brand looks at the world, or you're just interested in like how he thinks you can apply the 12-step process to basically anything that's troubling you in your life, uh, I recommend it. So we're going to talk about his book, and we're, of course, going to talk about everything else in the world. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's a fun discussion. Russell, thank you for dropping by. Well, thank you for having me, mate. So I got to the end of your book, which I I really liked, and uh, I, of course, read the author bio. Uh, and this may be an, a bit unexpected, but it says you have 60,000 bees. Does that mean you are a beekeeper or do you just know how many bees you have, like living in your house? <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just meticulous about counting insects. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a curious relationship with those bees in that um, I suppose I'm squeamish. You right. know, I'm not afraid, I hope. I'm not mm-hmm. afraid. I, don't, I love you know, fear. God, who doesn't experience fear? But what I mean is I got those bees as a present. It's quite a lot of admin involved in yeah. beekeeping, as mm-hmm. it turns out. So, but more important than the time commitment is the fact that you have to lift off what seems like a floor of their block of their home. Sure. And they're all in there living their lives and they're very hardworking. I mean, it's a cliche, isn't it? Busy mm-hmm. as a bee. They're really cracking on with building new life, serving the queen, making honey, making royal jelly. Like, and when you lift off their roof, they, they don't like that, mm-hmm. that that's happened. There's no way you can see it annoys them. You're, you're dressed in a very much a sort of like a, when they go and get E.T. off yeah. Elliot's house. Yeah. You're dressed like that. So you, that's a baddie <laughs> in, yeah. in any language. And uh, then when you put the lid back on, I'm like, oh, no, I'm definitely going to crush some bees doing this. And plus you're supposed to smoke them out. And the smoking, it doesn't make them calm. It makes them think there's a fire, so they go low. Mm-hmm. They go low because they think there's a fire because they're used to living in trees. That's what they would do naturally. So basically, the whole process of keeping a bee is fucking annoying them. Like, so so what I've since done is I've just left them alone to get on with it in the garden. Now, my friends who know more about beekeeping than me, and I wouldn't like to judge other beekeepers, I'm mm-hmm. sure they're more dexterous at putting the lid back on than I am. They've said, oh, you know, you've got to go in there and get the honey, but I'm thinking... Just let them do what they want. I <laughs> uh, see. I thought this was fascinating because every time I'm like, uh, I don't want to do my job anymore or something like that, I go to YouTube and watch videos of like other jobs. And this week it was beekeeping, just oh. randomly. So I, I, I was like interested by that uh, coincidence. I guess. Do you have like, regular crises? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't. I, I, I generally like my job, but everybody has that moment when they're like, eh, I want to be doing something else. So mm. uh, that that was this week for me. Um, so recovery. I think one of the things that that really 
uh, I want to say, gripped me about it. I, I kind of pushed back against it for a while. Which Why? is you sort of had a very broad definition of addiction mm-hmm. to me. And certainly, like, I was with you on, you know, chemical dependencies or on uh, food addiction, things like that. But, you know, you would extend it to, like, you could be addicted to a relationship. You can be addicted to a job, anything like that. Uh, and I'm wondering how you sort of arrived at this definition, which you won me over to by the end of the book. Ooh. But, like, it took me a bit to get there. I arrived at the definition through experience because I, I started to think of un- uh, as addiction as meaning an unconscious habit that you can't stop, but you would like to stop. Like, but now, because my personal experience with addiction was I was a bog-standard drug addict— that and like once I used this program, was given this program to work that I recognized, oh no, now I'm really obsessed with uh, relationships and sex. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was prior to becoming a drug addict, you know. And then so I used these steps around sex and relationships, and it helped me awaken and change in those areas. And over the course of my life, various times, either side of the most obvious and recognized form of addiction, chemical dependency, I've had addictive habits and patterns in all sorts of areas of varying degrees of social acceptance. If you're a heterosexual man who has sex with heterosexual adult females, no one's particularly interested in that, you know, and So that problem can go unaddressed for a long while. Mm -hmm. Food is a necessary part of life. If you eat loads of food or you eat food and make yourself puke or you don't eat food at all. I mean, obviously, like anorexia and bulimia are recognized as serious mental health and physical health conditions. Uh, But like, I think you don't have to get some people are not as extreme as that, but still having problems. And mine now, so as I say, an unconscious habit that you would like to change and you can't. Something that's not doing you any good. And and I think that the breeding ground for my own personal addiction were the relationships I was in, like, you know, familial relationships and, you know, romantic relationships and just this tendency to be self-centered and self-obsessed and to try and medicate myself with external stuff. And I think it all points to the same thing. We're unconscious. We're unaware. We're not sure of what we're doing. We're not living in our lives in a conscious and awoken or awakened way. Mm -hmm. We're acting through a sort of an inner psychic momentum that we've not addressed. Mm, interesting. So one of the things I kind of wondered about is, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people who struggle with mental health issues. Mm. And I'm wondering, what is the overlap for you between addiction issues, between things that that can be, you know, handled through a, a 12-step process, like you talk about in the book, and things that are more, uh, you know, inborn or ingrained, like depression or anxiety, things like that? In my personal experience, the overlap between mental health and addiction is just sort of 100%. Like mm. I've been diagnosed as being a depressive or manic depressive, various sort of forms of, you know, common mental illness prior to dealing with my addiction issues. And I think often addiction is an attempt to self-medicate. Most people that are addicted to something are trying to deal with their, the way they feel, their sadness. But I do recognise there are forms of mental illness where I you know, a program such as this one would not be sufficient. And even with addiction, this would be but one component. You know, it's necessary to have support, to be in support groups. And often I know lots of people that have, you know, pharmaceutical help or therapeutic help. I still see a counsellor as well as working the 12 steps. So 
Uh, you know, I, I guess there are forms of, there are obviously forms of mental, you know, if you're pretty out there, schizophrenic, it may not be enough to follow a 12-step program. But I, I don't think it would, I think it would be beneficial. I think yeah. it's always helpful to awaken people to take an inventory and understand yourself and address the way that you behave in relationships and to have some connection to yourself that's not just about the way you think and feel, but about observing your thoughts, observing your feelings, basically a sort of a spiritual discipline. Sure, sure. You've rewritten the 12 steps and they're on the back of the book jacket for anybody who picks up the book. And you've rewritten them, you know, uh, to be coarser, let's say. The first one, I'll read it as, are you a bit fucked? Um, uh, instead of whatever it is in the original. In the original, it came to believe we were powerless over our addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. Okay, so I, I've, re I've, re I've read those 12 steps before and been like, that does not apply to me. But I read yours and was like, oh, I could see where there are aspects of my life where this applies to me. And I'm, what was the process of like coming up with these new uh, versions that are perhaps more, uh, speak more to our modern ears, if you will? What it was, Todd, is that because I talk to addicts a lot and sometimes in prisons or young people, shall we say, mm -hmm. like... I, the language came to believe we were powerless over our addiction and our lives become unmanageable. It's a bit of a mouthful. Now, I'm a pretty verbose guy. It's already evident. I'm really aware that I give long answers to questions. It must be really boring for people. But like, um, but like, I, when I'm talking to people that have got drug issues and that are in an institution, I sort of go, all step one is you acknowledge that you're fucked. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. Are you fucked? Yes. Right. Good. That's <laughs> now we can start. Yeah. Like rather than going, no, I like taking drugs. I like being in prison. I like being in a shit relationship. I like spending five hours staring at social media, feeling worse and worse with every post I look at that other people's lives are better than mine. I enjoy it. All right, carry on then. Yeah. Carry on then. But if you want to change, the first thing is to acknowledge change is necessary. And what excited me as I began to examine it is that this is a sort of a universal process that could be applied on the individual level, on a cultural or a social level. It's that the first thing to do is to acknowledge there's a problem and, and and also on a very practical level Todd if you can't help someone if they don't do that if like someone says my cousin's a drug addict will you help him I'll go yeah let me talk to him like and, he, and if he goes I like taking drugs it's like oh carry on then I mean like, I can't do anything if the, unless the person goes yes I have a problem I'm fucked mm. then you go good step two do you think it's possible to not be fucked a lot of people actually don't a lot of people go no this is it for me I can't do anything else if you were in the pain I was in you would take drugs or uh, eat or have sex or obsessively look at porn the same way I did it's the only thing I've got that makes my life manageable right. And, and there I can start to go, yeah, but I used to take drugs all the time or I used to look at porn all the time and I don't anymore. So in a way, anyone that's changed is a living example of step two, the possibility to change. Came to believe a power great in ourselves could restore us to sanity or in my version, could you not be fucked? So, <laughs> and then step three is the admission that you won't change on your own. You'll need help of some kind. And in that, there is something very, very important. It's the principle of surrender, which I then noted through analysis and research and doing a degree in religion and global politics, is supplication is a necessary component of all religious ideology because it's the invitation to allow the ego to dissipate and some other force, in inverted commas, to operate within your consciousness. Right. In inverted commas. Everything's in inverted commas once you get into academia. You realize that language itself is so subject to analyses. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the moment when you yourself, uh, in any of these journeys you've gone on through, through the steps, realized that you were fucked? With drugs, it was really early and quick. Like, the, my addiction communicates fast. The first time I smoked a joint, like, I was flat out 
like I was in a college in the UK and like the guys that I smoked with a couple of years older than me, I was 16. These guys were so cool. Mm. You know, I'm from Essex in the suburbs. I'm from a pretty normal background. These guys were at this sort of a theatre arts school and they were, one was Northern. Other guy, a mixed race guy with dreads who was all handsome and they were just so cool. These people, I adored them. And like they sort of smoked weed and like I smoked with them. And like, you know, they've been doing that. This has been their culture for, for years, it seemed. And like on day one of me doing it, there was like an investigation in the school because I was slumped in the canteen with my top off, all pale and white and giddy and unwell. So it's like, right, there was a special assembly. Right, okay, there's a drug problem in this school. Yeah. If people are taking drugs, da, 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 that kind of thing. Now, from that day to the day I got clean, 27, uh, when I was 27, which was, you know, 11 years later, I took drugs every single day, mm. every single day, escalating from marijuana through to cocaine, LSD, till eventually crack and heroin. And because... I had when I first took that joint, I, it did. It took me out of myself, and mm -hmm. I wanted to get out of myself. I didn't want to be myself. And when I was a little kid playing with Star Wars figures, I didn't want to be myself. And when I was watching a TV, I didn't want to be myself. And when I was eating food and making myself puke up, I didn't want to be myself. So the condition was there latent. I recognised that I was fucked. Probably the first time I smoked a joint, the first time I drank alcohol, puked up everywhere, caused the real scene. Like the first time I took heroin, it was bloody brilliant, but really too good. Uh, but like you know, by that, that that was like you know meeting your sort of soulmate, mm -hmm. your narcotic soulmate, I suppose. But like, uh, so I knew I had a problem early on. I just didn't know the language around it and I didn't know there was an alternative to it. Right, right. You mentioned uh, in the book that the first three steps, people get hung up on different ones. But it seems like a lot of people get hum hung up on number three, which, which mentions God in mm. the classical language. And you talk about ways to think about the idea of God, even if you're an atheist, even if you're agnostic. And I'm wondering, as someone who often struggles with the idea of God mm. uh, myself, how did you find your way through to a place where you have what sounds like sort of a freewheeling spirituality, but it's there? The way I experienced it was I'm cynical about forms of power and, mm. and institutionalized forms of power. So if someone tells me, oh, there's this thing that's better than you, I don't like that way of seeing things. The brilliant thing that 12-step organizations do is tell you, choose your own conception of a higher power, that like, which in a way is a bloody obvious thing to do because even if we all grew up in the same Mormon village, we would have different imaginary concepts of what God might be in mm -hmm. our own heads because that's just the way that imagination and individual consciousness works. Yeah. So like, to say to someone, well, what do you think God is? Right, that's, a, that's an interesting thing because like, in a way, all you're asking someone to do is say, do you think there's something more powerful than you in the world or is you and your decisions and your way of life the mm. most important thing in the world? Same, so to take it like from an atheistic perspective, if you say, no, this is just a physical phenomena, a material phenomena, an explosion, expanding, rushing towards nothing with no conscious component and recent discoveries in, discoveries in quantum physics that deny previous understanding of physical law will in time be understood. And I would sort of agree with that actually because I think everything could be understood understood on a material mechanical level but ultimately I believe we'll reach a point where human intelligence will be insufficient to understand the phenomena that we're confronted with it will be in defiance of our sensory instruments and our ability to cognize. So at that point, we're dealing with a, a knowledge base, an information base that supersedes our ability to understand it. Now, in a way, that could be understood as God. Indeed, Einstein said, uh, 
there are forces in this universe that are more powerful than I can ever begin to understand. And I have great reverence for these forces. And to that degree, I'm religious. So he was sort of saying, you know, I'm not down with the gospels, but some shit's going on. Mm. Yeah. Like, so for me, whichever way you pursue it, you end up at a point dealing with this idea of there being something bigger than us. In a simplistic and pantheonistic term, you can say the routines and functions of nature, the process of the sunrise and photosynthesis, these are all beautiful forces and your own personal anatomy that keeps you alive, unbidden, your respiration and digestion and palpitating heart, mm. all forces that we are not in control of. And while you can mechanically explain, oh no, the heart does this and the lungs do that, no one really knows why and how this singular single cellular force was propelled to these great great complexities so for me it became about recognizing that that there were forces that there were powers and then seeing that in sort of religious in inverted commas ideologies there were certain repeated patterns and themes that were beyond cultural inflection like when I th- when we talk about the great monotheistic ideologies there are sort of they all bear kind of uh, uh, the prejudices of their culture and their time mm-hmm. in like and the stuff that leads to bigotry and conflict these days but in them too there's so much about unity and love Love and oneness and potential and glory yeah. and that stuff I find very very appealing and so if I like whilst I wouldn't myself subscribe to any particular religion if so I meet someone that's a Hindu I really go oh tell me about your Hindu stuff and mm. if I meet someone that's Muslim I'm like tell me about the, the Sufism I want to know you know so it's I think there's something in it that you can't get from rationalism that you mm-hmm. can't get from people talking about you know this sort of biochemical analysis of anatomy or neurology there's something going on and also there's a bloody great big crossover when I think it was Elon Musk says you know maybe this whole thing's a giant simulation created by a consciousness greater than us I'm like well that's the bag of our Gita says that except they don't use the word computer yeah. you know like so we're all reaching the same unifying idea of perhaps there is a, some kind of supreme consciousness that we are hooking up to yeah yeah I, I, re- I grew up uh, really religious and so for that reason I sometimes resisted as an adult which is um, to say I was fundamentalist uh, Christian growing oh up. wow so I had where lot, and what was it like uh, in the the middle of nowhere South Dakota um, and it gave me a lot of ideas about life and sex and various things that mm. I've had to spend a lot of my adulthood like untangling and being yes. like okay that's not actually right. That's not like actually the way the world works. But like, it's so tempting because we're human beings when we invent these systems of spiritualism. And I'm sure this has been done with the 12 steps as well to make them very legalistic, to make them very, um, very prescriptive. Like yes. this is how you must live your life. How do you avoid that temptation? How do you live in what, what you sort of call the great mystery of like life? And because the great mystery is a little frightening on yes, some level. Is. Yeah, It's because it's so frightening actually that mm-hmm. like you know the book begins with me really sort of hammering home that my motivation is I'm we're going to fucking die and mm-hmm. so whatever like your life live it in the that context don't ignore that what's happening is you as an individual and everyone you love is going to die so have a relationship with that concept rather than just like cuz like sometimes I'm a father to a little baby who's beautiful and perfect and pure and like in, in, when she's all gorgeous, I'm like, oh God, you're so lovely. And another voice goes, she's going to die one day. <laughs> right. So I have to, I have to, I can't ignore it. Something in me yeah. won't allow it. So the way I, the way I avoid orthodoxy is actually inherent in this process that I've not got the right to tell, I don't know what it's like to fucking grow up in 
South Dakota with fundamentalists <laughs> telling you all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't agree with probably. So I can't tell you how to understand God. But all I can tell you is what I feel. And as long as it leads me to a position, which is also inherent in the steps, where I'm loving and compassionate to you, that I don't see myself as worse than you or better than you, and that I don't try to force you to do anything, and if possible, I help you in ways that I'm guided to or ways that I can, what's wrong with that, you know? Yeah. Um, for me, all the problems that occur within religion are p- actually could easily be described as political problems because they're about the management of power. People go, listen, we're the ones with access to the code. We're, and, and it, we, you know, God says, don't do this and do do that, and can I have 10% of your income? And I, like, I don't feel that if there are omnipotent forces holding the spheres together, they care about what you do with your dick, particularly. <laughs> I think they care about what you do with your heart. Sure, sure. Well, I uh, asked for some questions from our, our listeners on Twitter, uh, and uh, I, I want to start with one that I think is pursuant to this. I'm going to sprinkle them throughout. I want to start with one that is— What's uh, that word? Pursuant. Uh, yeah, pursuant. That is, like, pursuant to our current discussion. Uh, this is from Shashank P. I shall use that word in a conversation later today. <laughs> pursuant. That means it pursues it. Yeah, basically. It's a, Yeah, pursuant. we're just—it fo- follows from what we're talking about. Uh, and, I'll use I, it later in this conversation. <laughs> Shashank P. asks, what role does Hinduism play in your life? Hinduism plays a big role in my life because I'm a fan of Joseph Campbell, the mm. comparative mythologist and analysist. So, and he says that Hinduism is good because it presents such a broad panoply of gods and deals with the sort of complexity of the humours, the strands, the energies. Like a lot of pantheonistic faith, you know, when Mars is with you, the god of war, oh no, a god has taken it. I didn't know what I was doing, Your Honour. The red mist descended and before I knew it, there was blood everywhere. Ah, the god of war was with you. Oh my God, I didn't mean it. I don't know what happened to me before. My trousers and pants were down. Ah, Aphrodite, she has had her way with you. Knowing that gods are not in the constant gods are in the body so my like I'm not uh, like you know like I've read bits of the Bhagavad Gita I've got the Maharabhata at home and I've got Hindu deities tattooed up and down my silly little body I've got Ganesh because I, Ganesh the elephant headed god the remover of obstacles that I now understand to mean that if I'm feeling jealousy in me I need that obstacle removed so that I can be a channel of peace and love. Uh, Lord Krishna, the supreme godhead uh, derived from Vishnu, uh, I have tattooed on me because it's a playful, benevolent, Christ-like deity that with his pipe pans, uh, pipes reality into being. Loving, benevolent, mischievous and joyful. Like, uh, interesting energies. The trickster aspect, the playful aspect is uh, of God is one that is neglected, I notice, in monotheistic mm-hmm. faiths somewhat. Yeah. I think this is to do with institutionalization. There are, Christ is obviously this figure, I mean, you know more than me, uh, supreme benevolence. And there's that moment in the temple where like, there's anger and there's the moment where like the spirit of the madman goes into sows, you know, sort of magic seeming stuff, mm-hmm. miracles, obviously, in true conventional language. But there is not examples of Christ being a bit naughty. Although when he's in the temple with the teachers, he's sort of, precocious, isn't he? But like, I like the idea, what I like about Hinduism is it's got sort of breadth and it's got um, sort of voluptuousness. Like, you know, if people are beautiful, things are beautiful. It feels like it wouldn't, like if you're Hindu, it feels like you wouldn't get caught up about sex too much, for example. Yeah. Whereas I can see how with certain aspects of Christianity, particularly in a country like this, which has its roots in Puritanism, you could come a bit like, oh no, I'm gay or oh Christ, that doesn't seem good that I felt that then. Yeah. You know, it seems a bit ascetic and self-judgmental. 
But the other thing about Hinduism, it is like, you know, you're not meant to go around fucking everyone. Like, you know, like most religions at some point say, don't go around fucking everyone. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite, uh, my favorite, uh, story about Jesus's trickster, which is in the Bible. Oh. It's like, there's, there's a, there's a fig tree that's not giving good enough figs and Jesus is like, die. And it, it like withers. And, uh, well, what do you it, think that means? I have no idea, but like I was taught growing up that it was like, oh, this is a good thing that Jesus made this tree die. And let's not think about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> but now I come back to it as an adult and I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Mm. <laughs> um, I want to, mm. I want to, I want to return to something that you mentioned earlier. I've got to understand this fig tree a bit more now. Hold on. <laughs> right. Maybe it's to do with this, that a fig tree tree has got to have a function to be yeah. fruitful mm-hmm. and Christ is saying if it ain't giving us figs it can fuck off yeah we yeah. want figs out of you be functional if you're a human being bear fruits buy a man's fruits do we know him is it part of that thing yeah it's I think I think it's related to that yeah like like mm. that, that comes up in, in Paul a little bit later but yeah God, you really know the scriptures this is good <laughs> somewhat yeah um but I do want to return to something you said earlier which is uh, talking about the ways religion and politics are bound up in each other. And I feel like you talk a lot in this book about, or not a lot, but you do talk at the end about how you sort of wish that politics could be centered around building a better world. And it often seems like it's not. Um, And I'm wondering what you make of this political moment when, especially in the West, we have a lot of these movements that are uh, trying to make us more isolated in some ways rather than more connected. I feel like I see a continuum of... uh institutions that masquerade as being defined by public utility but are in effect about the conservation of particular strands of power. Mm -hmm. I think this probably began some time ago prior to even what we recognize as democracy, but the trend seems to be uh, towards uh, deterioration. It's getting worse. It's becoming more extreme. Mm-hmm. I've been learning a bit about Marxist theory. Um, all, all Marxist theory really was is that it pointed out that capitalism was built on limitless growth. And if you have a system of limitless growth in a finite world, you've immediately, it's built upon a paradox. So capitalism has built into it that it has to mask its essence. It's mm-hmm. essentially duplicitous. It also, Marxist theory reveals that it will reduce the role of a human being to a participant in an economic system Mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, a participant in a social system or a spiritual system. The economics and productivity become the determinants of the way our culture is uh, led. Mm -hmm. So, and and I've noticed as a human in the world that what that, the effect that's had on my psyche is I see the world in terms of commodity. Mm -hmm. Like that I'm thinking, well, what can Todd do for me? What can that woman do? do for me. And like, of course, you can say there's biochemical roots in that. There's evolutionary roots in that. But what I think we have is an economic system that is built upon the worst aspects or worst, you know, least beneficial aspects of our nature, our selfishness, our need for self-preservation, our need for growth. It's kind of the, there are other words for these phenomena, greed, selfishness. Like, Mm -hmm. so, so, there is undeniably a crossover because political systems ultimately emerge from our consciousness, from the consciousness of individuals, from the consciousness of groups. So my belief is, is that if we, mm, forgive the hippiness, heal ourselves somewhat on an individual level, it's likely that we'll be less attracted to negative political systems. So this moment that we're experiencing, I feel is like the manifestation of dark unconscious forces 
And only, and that sounds a bit frou-frou, but it's no different, I don't think, than James Baldwin saying that the creation of the category of the Negro was America's need, of course, for free labour, but also to, to deposit its own shadow elsewhere in the other. America's inability to deal with the, the darkness in an individual. And, the crea- like, and, and we're seeing this, I think, with contemporary Islamophobia, that it is the other that must be condemned. This has happened as well with sexual minorities. Is the 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 dominant power strand, you know, and I mean, I say whiteness, but whiteness not just as a skin tone, whiteness as the source of power, the hegemonic whiteness, uh, whitenesses or powers inability to deal with its own complexity, that each individual has a darkness in them. And if you don't address that, you will create another with, with upon whom to cast your shadow. I've been using HelloFresh for honestly about a year now uh, before they even signed on to help uh, sponsor this podcast. And I have been consistently impressed with the quality of their meals, with the quality of their ingredients, and just with like the way everything comes together. The recipes are easy to follow and I always end up feeling like some sort of weird genius when I emerge from the kitchen with some wonderful dish or another. And I think that if you are looking for an easy way to cook and an easy way to provide uh, healthier meals for your family. HelloFresh is the way to go. Um, They offer a classic box, a veggie box, and a family box, and you can order three, four, or five different meals for two or four people every week. New recipes are created every week, and every recipe is just six steps. You'll be chopping and zesting. You'll be cooking. Uh, Most of the recipes take just 30 minutes. Some some take less, and they require minimal equipment. Uh, You're going to be constantly experimenting in the kitchen to let fresh, natural ingredients shine, and they offer ever-changing menus, classic ingredients in a new light, and easy-to-follow recipes to help you avoid the food coma and feel good inside and out. It's the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience and not just the plate. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. And they employ two full-time regular dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. They deliver the food to your doorstep in a recyclable insulated box for free and it's less than $10 per meal. So listen, if you want to get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code in Interesting 30. Again, that's interesting 30. So you go to HelloFresh.com, you enter the promo code interesting 30, you're going to get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. And I I think you're really going to enjoy it. In the States, we, uh, I often wake up because I live in California, so I'll wake up after everybody else. And Donald Trump will have already tweeted about 15 different things. And yeah. it'll be that sort of freewheeling anxiety that, that, kind of have, that kind of has been there for a while. And yet I think I don't, I try not to think about him as like the, you know, the, the monster that needs to be defeated so much as part of a system, if yes. that makes sense. And I'm wondering what you make of Trump as somebody who doesn't live here and doesn't probably wake up every morning and say, I wonder what Trump's up to. Yeah, we don't do it. I mean, like, because <laughs> I, 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 we're English, but like, like we obviously I have Twitter and like I follow a lot of Americans, sort of Rosie O'Donnell and <laughs> Jad Apatow and like, you know, sort of and Mehdi Hussain, sort of journalists and stuff that work over here. And like, and every day it's just like, oh, Fucking hell. <laughs> like these, people, <laughs> these poor people, they're in constant distress. In fact, I've not spoken to Rosie O'Donnell for a while. And I, to, to, but like she's here in Los Angeles. Uh, so I tweeted uh, uh, 
like a, how are you? What do you think of this Trump fella? Like, <laughs> like, like, like uh, opinions of it are so sort of vividly <laughs> articulated and so continual. Um, so what I feel, I agree with you that there's not much value in continually diagnosing him as an egotist or, you know, though there is a fact, like I was with Joe Rogan yesterday and he said like he's sort of like a manifestation of this sort of bizarre cartoon ego. And I think that's a really astute observation. But, you know, that what's important and what I learned from talking to this guy, Yanis Varoufakis, the leader of Syriza in Greece, when Greece reneged on their debt repayments to the EU, like Greece nearly turned into some sort of anarcho-syndicalist utopia, but like <laughs> were pulled back into the mainframe as <laughs> tends to be the case. And he said, when he was dealing with like Wolfgang Schauber, the sort of finance minister of Germany and the most powerful person in European politics, he said he recognised that the individuals within the system have no power. The system itself has power. He said, this is how it works. If you try to defy the function of the system, the system would replace you. So whatever power you've got and however extreme your particular characteristics may seem to be, you are functioning within a system and the system will protect and preserve itself. Systemic change, very, very difficult. If you start saying, hey, let's cancel the debt of all of our ordinary Americans. Now, like, saying that sounds like a heresy. If, like, why don't we just cancel everyone's mortgage, cancel everyone's debts, have free healthcare. Like, no, you can't. Oh, well, but you can have quantitative easing where you can create money and pump it into the uh, into Wall Street. Yeah, you can. Well, how, what the fuck is the difference? Yeah. Like, you know, so it's like, so systemic change is impossible. And, and so that makes me, that's uh, that makes me suspect that the role of individuals, however vivid and grotesque it may be, and, you know, it's unlike, I hope we never get a more clear example than we currently have. I don't feel that people's individuality can have a huge amount of impact on entrenched systems, whilst accepting that Donald Trump has said some pretty outrageous stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've been reading about uh, the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks and, and some of that because I'm sort of trying to understand uh, the the movements on the left as well and i've been reading about kind of kind of the the hope and and good intentions and great ideas they had at the start but that system also produced you know stalin it produced yeah. some monstrous folks and like it seems like no matter what system we invent it ends up becoming about entrenching power in the hands of a very few entrenching power and money in the hands of a very few mm. and i'm wondering what you see as a way around that like is there a way for us to do that without all finding some state of higher consciousness, higher being? Well, I think that finding a higher state of consciousness would be a bloody good start and <laughs> a necessary component. And certainly if a significant number of people do that, like, you know, there's a lot of people believe that would change consciousness broadly. <laughs> and, you know, there's some sort of studies on the way that, that, that individual events cause sort of spikes and movements. And there's some pretty sort of anecdotal and easily un, uh, understandable stuff about how, like, when there's a sort of very high-profile boxing match, you know, violence increases in communities. You know, like, you can track these kind of things. I know that... Um, leftist movements aren't inherently better than individualistic or libertine movements often in practice. And the obvious, and the clear example that you cite of Stalinism being the sort of consequence of a, a, a socialist experiment is, yeah, I suppose, the, the, the clearest one. Um, what I believe, though, and what I heard this brilliant analysis of the Russian Revolution, that ultimately that what happened inadvertently is they were they were magnetized back to the preceding template and what preceded 
communism in Russia was czarism. And mm-hmm. they, you know, a small elite dominated a serf population. So it's almost like there is something not rational and material that reasserted itself over the consciousness of that nation, over the consciousness of that system. That is what happened. They started off, well, why don't we have socialism? But they ended up with a kind of sort of grey monarchy, mm-hmm. sort of a secret monarchy or a less explicit monarchy. When, when, If you're asking me as a person who's only at the end of my first year of religion in global politics, what, what, what would be a better alternative system? This is the only thing I've started to begin to understand. The closer power is to the people that are affected by it, the less corrupt it is. Right. So my burgeoning interest, and I'm only at the early stages of this, are in anarchism and the decentralization of power wherever possible. The hospitals should be run by the people that work at the hospitals and the patients that use the hospitals, the schools by the teachers and the parents and the pupils of that schools, communities by the people that live there. Of course, it seems that some degree of centralization is necessary for things like defense and possibly health on a federal or national level and roads. You can see the sort of case for municipal, uh, for, for broad power, like in, in some instances. But what I feel, and like I recently on my podcast, Under the Skin, which I'll please listen to if you get a chance, has, uh, like I interviewed a guy called Khan Ross, who was a dip- diplomat in the Foreign Service around the time of the weapons of mis- mass destruction scandal and 9 11 and the invasion of Iraq and he said he became totally disillusioned he wanted his whole life to work in the foreign service he worked in the foreign service he found out that the thing he believed in was a lie that it was about you know manufacturer consent duplicity etc and he said that and he subsequently became a, an anarchist and he talks very clearly about and lucidly about how if you have any form of centralized power of course it will be like it will that tendency will assert now that makes me think it's a human tendency and i can see that in myself because as an individual i can start off very ideologically but there are certain patterns that reassert in me i start off thinking yeah i'll really i'll help this housing estate to be liberated from this corporate takeover that's going to mean these families lose their home but there's definitely a point certainly when i'm threatened or i'm tired or i'm exhausted or i'm attacked where I start thinking, no, I'm fucking brilliant. I'll lead them out. Of to, I'll lead them to the promised land. My own little messiah complex kicks right in. So I think that happens to human beings. I think that we are apes on some level, and our ape behaviours will assert, particularly when it comes to the management of resources, particularly when it comes to power. So I think that we have to create systems that prevent any one individual having too much power for too long. And you could say that the American presidency does that, but what we suspect is is that true power maintains itself beyond the cycles of electoral politics. People have been saying that for a long while. And like Noam Chomsky is the person that says it most clearly and articulately and in the way that I understand it most. So my simple, a bit late for that, answer is break down power structures wherever possible. People should run their own communities, their own jobs, their own lives. I have another question that, that sort of uh, operates off this. It's from, from Ryan, Ryan Corda. Uh, who who asks, um, do you plan on getting involved? Because you talk about this in the book, about getting involved with politics and how it sort of ate you alive in some ways. Yes. But do you plan on getting involved with the uh, with future elections? He specifically cites the 2020 election to help someone progressive and stable take office. I can't help get involved because I'm such a show-off and I'm <laughs> so excited by power. 
that I, you know, like, because I don't, like, I could have, when you were asked them questions, Todd, I go, oh, no, I better not talk about that. I prefer talking about spiritual matters. <laughs> but I, no, I instead, with half an hour's education, we'll talk about anarchism. You know, so like, I've basically told you all I know about, <laughs> about anarchism now. But like, because I think that each of us should, in our way, participate as best we can. I think mm. that's the sort of the best we're going to manage muddling along together. So... You know, like, they were, like in Britain now, we've got like the leader of the Labour Party is Jeremy Corbyn. He's an explicit socialist who's been in Parliament for 40 years. He's not someone that's going to become Prime Minister and then take a job in the city and give half a million dollar speeches everywhere he goes. He's a man of integrity whose motivations are, I want to help people. <laughs> like whether or not you agree with his politics, you would have to agree with, agree with his integrity. Now, and, and over here, you had the sort of comparative phenomenon of Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. and he didn't become leader of the Democrats, and who knows about the ifs and the buts of it all. But I feel that Trump is an emotional response to disempowerment, and perhaps the most sensible rebuttal to that would be, uh, we are going to help people. We're going to help ordinary people, regardless of colour and belief. We're going to do our best to redistribute wealth. And when I use that phrase, redistribute wealth, redistribution of wealth is continually happening. It's just usually redistributed to a few people instead yeah. of many people. Uh, the book in in the book in chapter nine, which is about uh, making amends, in essence, uh, which you call now apologize, unless that would make things worse. You talk about how for the last ten years you've lived your life in the public eye, uh, and you've had you know experiences that that people know about through the tabloids or whatever. Does that make the process of making amends, the process of keeping to these twelve steps, does that make it more difficult, or is it just different and heightened? Probably the latter, different and heightened. I mean, there are sort of like you know the process of making amends is once you, you do an inventory on yourself and point and, and you, you write down all the things you resent which is a, a very revealing process oh this person bullied me when I was a kid my mum was sick my dad this you know like sort of like you know varying degrees of resentment right across your whole life you know right up to modern days so you've got it there all on a bit of paper and you think god all those things I've worried about all those things that make up me there they are now on paper and the, the program teaches you a way of categorising and analysing those resentments and how you participate in their perpetuation how each resentment in your life has a fear underneath it and it's extraordinary to discover that it could be something quite minor like oh my girl my wife's friends are coming around they're making noise downstairs it seems like a small irritant and when I analyse it in the book it's the fear behind it is I'm going to end up alone I'm not good enough to have this wife <laughs> so like you're running on a level and one of the things I find myself saying and I really believe is we don't choose between having a programme and not having a programme we choose between a conscious program and an unconscious program. If you're not working a conscious one, you're working your unconscious one. And I speak for myself because if I don't do this analysis, if I don't awaken to my reality, I'll be determined by unconscious fears and unconscious wants that I've not addressed. So, you know, when you do that process of inventory and you learn all the stuff that is bugging you, you learn how you perpetuate it and participate in it. And then you learn, oh, fuck, I've really damaged loads of people through my behavior. And you don't go, yeah, but they done this. You just go, no, that's, that's none of my business. I did this. So you take responsibility for the stuff you did. And if possible, if it wouldn't make things worse for them, you make amends. I'm, I'm aware that sort of like there are sort of vivid examples of wrongdoing in my uh, life because it's taken place to a degree on a public level. But often those things, what's difficult about, one of the things that's difficult about being a famous person, and there's loads of things that are really good about it, is what happens is, 
is people tell a story about something you're meant to have done, but that story is, in itself is a manipulation and a sort of, a, it's phony, it's not true. And then you have to defend that story. And you feel like, oh, but that isn't the reality. Here's the reality. And the, the way that media works these days is like, this is why something like the, a podcast like yours, Todd, is good because it's, you can deal with nuance. You know, like if I'm on Colbert, like the other night, I'm there for six minutes, mm-hmm. you know, so and in six minutes, I'll just, I'll be a bit wacky and yeah. say some long words and hopefully get Stephen Colbert a laugh and then I'll consider that a job well done and I'll crack on and go home. But like, and dealing in living your life in media in general, it's constantly about reductivism and telling sort of familiar stories. Like, oh, you're a bad boy, you're a wild man, you're reckless, you're a goon, you're disrespectful, or whatever. So then you'll, you find yourself defending stuff that you didn't really do. So this is about truth, this program. This is about what did you truly do wrong? And I have done things that are wrong. And those things I make amends for. But I don't make amends for other people's perception of what I might have done because that stuff's in their imagination and it's none of my business. So I've had loads of scandals in the UK. And can, like, take the simple example of people go to me a lot, don't you regret telling young people not to vote? Mm. And I have to go, what I said was, is there's no point in voting if the hegemonic bi-party system offers no meaningful alternatives to ordinary people. Now, that's not... People aren't... Like, I can, I can, I'll defend that all day long. Like, so I'll probably... I'm going on Bill Maher later, so I'm anticipating one of the things that I'll be, you know, I'll be defending is that position. But I won't be defending my actual position of there's no point voting if, if you're not offered meaningful democratic choice. You know, so that's just one example of like, so it's not like I feel like I have to make amends to the electorate of Great Britain for telling them that democracy is meaningless when, of course, real democracy is perhaps the best chance that people have. Um, you know, you, you, I can only defend what I actually said. So when it comes to doing step nines, like I've done as best as I can, but a lot of them are like, they're my perception of them. And some of them are, you don't do it because it probably make matters worse. Right, right. Do you wish you'd, you weren't famous ever? Do you wish you'd become, or do you wish you'd become famous in a different way? No, I'm all right with how I am. And a lot of the time I'm not famous, like in my house, like I'm not famous to my baby. I'm not famous to my wife. She doesn't give a fuck. And (laughs) she's she's sort of most, in the most patronizing way. Oh, that's nice, dear. When I tell her (laughs) stuff I've been doing. And I, um, and also France, (laughs) you know, so like this stuff. So it's, you know, like, so, no, really. There's all sort of, like, of course it, there can be situations that are irritating, but I, not being famous had a lot of things about it that were irritating <laughs> as well. So I'm generally grateful and accepting of my position. You've written a lot. Uh, well, you've written before very movingly, um, like when, about Amy Winehouse, about Robin Williams. You, you really, you're really open with putting your own uh, demons, your own past out there. And a lot of people find that process difficult. Is that, does that come naturally to you or, or do you, uh, do you kind of have to force yourself to do it as part of your mission to talk to people about addiction and getting help and things like that? It doesn't, it's not hard for me. It seems like a necessary alchemy. It feels like a way of processing my own feelings and that it possibly could help other people as well. Like that I feel like sort of by saying to people, oh, I feel worthless on a daily basis. I feel frightened on a daily basis. That, Like, if they do themselves feel that, 
they were going to think, well, I'm going to both have to spend all my time masking the fact that I feel worthless and full of fear sometimes. You know, like it allows people, I think, to go, yeah, I feel that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that Eminem lyric, if you feel like I feel I've got the antidote from one of his early songs, like I feel like, oh, yes, there's something it connects people. Vulnerability is a good place to connect. Instead of like, you think of how social media can make people feel like you're connecting on the level of, look at my great life. Yeah. You know, like that's the sort of the cliche of social media. Well, I don't feel that way. I feel like I need help and mm. I need people to love me and be sweet to me. And when people are loving to me and sweet to me, I become really funny and kind. And if people are sort of like, I don't like you, I sort of go, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I can become sort of angry or sort of violent, <laughs> like inwardly and emotionally, I mean, and, you know, sad. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I just sort of try to create situations where people don't feel threatened. And one of the things about that anarchism that that Khan Ross descri- explained to me was it's about power, like in and, and a very fundamental and personal way of like when you meet people, not treating them like you've got power over them. And it's sort of, I think we unconsciously assert power a lot. And like just the basic examples, if a person is a valet, it, you're like you're a valet in my life and mm. I'm the guy using the service of a valet and like but that's not a good frequency to live on if yeah. like if you can remind yourself I'm a human he's a human that person's a valet that person's Jay-Z that person's cleaning my hotel room that person is Bruce Springsteen yeah. you know like if you don't get too caught up in those outer you know manifestations and it's very liberating yeah uh I want to I want to sort of pivot off that to another one of our our, our reader questions. So this is from from Han who asks, uh, "You've weighed in on U.S. gun violence before. Uh, what do you make of the reaction to the Las Vegas shooting, which will be a couple weeks in the past when this is released, but it's it's uh, just very recent uh, as we're talking." Um, and I'm thinking about this in terms of power. A lot of people see power being having the most guns, and I'm wondering, like, what what do you think of reconciling those ideas? It's a very unique case, this country, isn't it? I don't think there are any other... Like, it's such an extraordinary um, situation. I spoke recently to a British journalist called Gary Young who lived in this country for a long while, and he's written a brilliant book about a sort of 24-hour... the number of children killed by guns in America in the 24-hour period. And he's like, he took a day at random... He analysed it chronologically, and over the course of that day, I think like nine kids were killed, and you know, sort of one kid picked up a gun, shot himself, and another kid was shot because someone was trying to shoot their mum. I mean, it's just like, in, like, and he said, "This is just an ordinary day. If I had to pick the next day, these are the ones that it would have been the day before. It'd have been these kids." And um, so, like, it makes you wonder when there's something as severe as the Las Vegas massacre. It makes you realise what is the resistance to not even gun control, but like, let's just not have guns everywhere. Like, you know, why would that, it seems like such a sort of an obvious solution. And it's it's only when you think, well, what does this attachment mean? It must mean something very deep in the American psyche about power. I would suggest masculinity. Um, Because how can it be practical, really? How can it be a practical thing of this for defence of my home? The brilliant Australian comedian Jim Jeffries does some excellent stand-up on that matter. And... And I, I, I think uh, it's to do with fear, like mm. deep fear and, and confused ideas around maleness. And then I suppose it's one of those areas where you see how big government, as opposed to what I've been talking about before, as you know, like sort of the devolution of power wherever possible, can really make a difference by imposing regulation. Um, the idea that, you know, so like I think that, you know, in the UK, it, it has all, all, all of its 
obvious and particular problems, but it doesn't have, you know, it has knife crime, you know, it doesn't have gun crime and less people are killed as a result of that. And also, it doesn't seem to me that we're at the behest of a hegemonic and draconian government any more than America is. It's not like, well, we can form ourselves into militias pretty easily. We are sort of equally hypnotised and managed by power structures, not more, not really less, but just less people are killed by guns. So what does it represent? What do we talk about when we talk about guns? What is this unwillingness to relinquish it? And like as someone who's been in gun ranges and fire guns, it is tremendous fun, Mm. brilliant power to have one in your hand, but it doesn't seem like it's worth the misery and pain that it's inflicting. We've talked a lot about things that are screwed up about the U.S., but as an outsider, what's your favorite thing when you come here? What's your favorite thing about the United States? I really love this country. Yeah. Like, I think about, like, like with that Make America Great Again, it's like, well, yeah, America actually is fucking great. Like, America is the country of Malcolm X and Richard Pryor and Bill Hicks mm. and Scott Fitzgerald and Dorothy Parker. What the fucking hell's going on? Like, and still, when you, like, I once was making a documentary about Jack, Jack Kerouac, another amazing American, drove from Lowell, Massachusetts to San Francisco, recreating part of one of the journeys from the great American novel on the road. And, like, when I was in, like, places that are, like, referred to disparagingly as, like, flyover states and that, people were fucking amazing. Like, Mm. people that I would meet in gas stations and motels, like, cool, funny people in trucks and RVs and, you know, like, ordinary American people. It makes me realise how detrimental systems of power can be, how the negative effect they can have on the human spirit. Because this is the America you see in the news is not the America you experience when talking to Americans. I think American counterculture is one of the most powerful and beautiful cultural forces. It's certainly the most relevant one to me because of the time I live and the place I'm from. It's what I'm defined by. Mm -hmm. So what I love about America is the people of America and what is challenging are the power structures and they aren't America at all. They Mm. masquerade as America. They use the flag as a veneer to advance their own economic imperatives the same as they did when Britain was the most powerful country in the world through colonialism, a more explicit form of global tyranny. Um, So, uh, But I think those things are universal. I don't think American tyranny is any worse than British tyranny was. I just feel like it's a shame that we can't get the the humanitarian values to inform our politics. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm going to ask a a couple more reader questions before we end here. Uh, Steve Green asks, with the recent political comedy slash talk show boom, do you think Brand X, which was your show on FX for a couple years, do you think it would have worked better today than it did five years ago? It might have done. Thanks for asking that. I didn't realize. Like, There's things like on YouTube, like uh, the uh, interview with the Westbury Baptist Church. I'm very proud of that. I watched it recently because I participated in a TV festival in the UK and we showed that clip. And I liked it because I was not so nice to them. That's what I remember thinking was funny. Like, because I picked up these gay guys in, on Melrose myself to bring to the studio. On the way in, I got I was, this fella called Jose used to drive me. He's a really lovely bloke, actually. And like I goes, listen, we've got. I need some gay men because we've got the Westbury Baptist Church coming and I think we need some gay men. And like sometimes in TV, like researchers and producers, I, I'd rather do stuff myself. So I stop off in this bar on Melrose and like go to these guys listen I'm going to meet the Westbury Baptist Church on my TV show but there's guys in there with their dicks out and stuff I'm like alright lads listen 
come here a minute. Uh, not now. Can we, do you want to come with us to this TV show? And they're like, yeah, sure. And that, that's a really interesting consortium of gay men. Like one seemed like a kind of Latin bloke, one black bloke. And they were like proper queenie out there gay fellas got in the car with us. And I'm thinking this is what the TV show should be. This is so funny what's happening right now. We arrive at the studio in the Westbury Baptist Church. What I like about the Westbury Baptist Church, and there's a sense you don't hear that much, <laughs> is like, at least they're honest about it. I mean, they don't like go, like, why would you not go, well, hold on a minute, we're in Los Angeles on a, what's clearly going to be a kind of a left-leaning, liberal-seeming TV show. Why don't we rein our views in a bit? No, no. They come out with, we hate fags type <laughs> signs. And I sort of think, well, well done, you know, and they're like super aggressive. So like, and I like, and I created or at least facilitated a conversation between the gay men and the Westbridge Church. When there's bits where the gay men were sort of rude to the Westbridge Baptist Church, I was like, oi, don't bully them guys. They're trying their hard. Like, and I was sort of sticking up for the Westbridge Baptist Church. And for me, it undermined and made it seem silly. And one of the things I like most about comedy, Todd, is that comedy, comedy infers that there is a level of reality which we all have as a reference that sort of usurps the mainframe that we're all pretending to operate within like that you can at any moment sort of peep behind the edge of reality and go this is really silly what we're doing let's carry on pretending it's real and meaningful and it therefore is a useful tool for exposing a kind of universal connection because if all of our protocols, all of our cultures are sort of daft and meaningless, then there is a kind of a oneness in that. There's a kind of joy in that. And that's why I do somewhat bemoan the lack of a trickster component to God that's present in sort of African and other indigenous faiths that God just sort of plays pranks on people the whole time to make you realize this is all bollocks. This mm. is a game. Wake up. This one is one I had to Google to understand, but wow. I, I hope you will. Uh, it's from Madeline Trimble. Actually, multiple people ask this. They they say, you are a huge West Ham fan. That's a, a football club. I, I am led to believe. Billick in or Billick out. Billick is a player, I guess. Billick is the manager of West okay. Ham United. He was a former player. He's currently the coach. And West Ham haven't had a great start to the season. Um. Bilic is a good fella. I've met him. He's a sort of a charismatic, excuse me, Croatian man. He has that sort of intensity that uh, some, in my experience, Eastern European men sometimes have, kind of charismatic and a bit sort of gangster. I kind of like him. And I think maybe this is a time for perseverance rather than persecution and sticking with people and giving people a chance. Football in the UK, like most sport, has become so dominated by commerce that, you know, like if you if you go five games without winning, you're out of a job. That, mm. You know, that's sort of how it operates now. And I think that's a bit of a shame, although it does sort of, it contributes to the carnival. We all, I, I enjoy that. Oh, wow, someone's been sacked. Wow, another player's been signed. But well, the thing that's really important about sport is that it's a way of us recognizing tribal affinity and how certain people can go forward and represent us and we can come together as a community and that kind of stuff gets lost when a thing something comes overly commodified so uh, village in <laughs> village in uh my final my, my question for you before we go to our, our final segment is you write very movingly in the conclusion of this book about the birth of your daughter i'm wondering as you look over your own relationship to the 12 steps now as a father has it shifted How, do you now sort of see it in a different way, because I know that becoming a parent changes everything for everybody. Yeah, it's changed. It did. It Like, it was a very... The way I relate to the 12 steps is that if I hadn't done the 12 steps, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I wouldn't be present enough. I wouldn't be able to be in the relationship I'm in with my wife. 
Um, the impact of childbirth on my psyche is sort of incomparable. And like everybody says, it can't be anticipated. But like it was like a uh, glitch. It was like a level shift. It really tore my reality apart, not to say my dear wife's reality was similarly impaired. And like it was a, an amazing experience. It was so, it made me realize something about matter and spirit. When I saw her physical form first in the water, it was a water birth. She looked just like a special effect or something. She looked like a really good special effect baby. When her eyes opened, it was like I saw consciousness ignite and something ignited and connected in me. And it made me realize that it is consciousness that determines us, not matter. It made me feel that rather than think that. Mm. It's changed me more profoundly. It's given me, uh, it makes me understand that I am not the terminus of intention. I'm just a vessel for other life. Mm. It's changed everything, really. We end every show by asking our guests some of the same questions. Uh, this episode is our last before Halloween, so I'm going to lead with our, our October question, which is, what is your, like, what's your great costume moment if you've had a costume that you've just been really proud of. It doesn't have to be for Halloween, but that's a special bonus. Once in a film with Adam Sandler called Bedtime Stories, I dressed as a sort of a robot that was clearly a nod to C-3PO, but uh, had dreadlocked hair. I was a golden robot for a day, mostly in a trailer because I was only in this particular scene for a short while. <laughs> and I liked being that golden robot, even though I couldn't move my face. They even made my gums gold. Oh, you know, well. <laughs> yeah, they go and I gold little teeth plates in, and I sat watching a British film, a Mike Lee film, with my mate Sharon. And when I go for a wee, my pink penis was the only non-golden thing about me, <laughs> and it made life seem quite ridiculous. I suppose that's my best costume moment. Uh, what's the last like book you've read or movie you've seen, TV show you've watched? Like, just the last pop culture thing you've taken in, and what did you think of it? I'm reading Moby Dick. Mm. Uh, and it's I can't believe how brilliant it is I can't believe how someone can flip between literal writing and metaphor with such expertise can talk about God and knowledge ontology epistemology so articulately so wonderfully so beguilingly I think it's like such a masterpiece there are passages in there that like are like a spell on consciousness and I suppose that's what great literature does it moves your consciousness from one position to another mm. it's so dexterous and beautiful this is your first time reading it yeah i've tried to read it a few times and like you know if something don't grab you oh fuck this but i was stuck with it and like it gets deep and brilliant i, I love it have you read it i have yeah it was many years ago in college and I, I don't think i appreciated it in the way i would now yeah well you should read it again because he's talking about god in like i mean the only thing i don't like about it is the wailing <laughs> aside from the wailing it's a bloody good book like, yeah it's amazing Finally, who's the person you've learned the most from that you've never met? That I've learned the most That can be dead or alive, yeah. That I've never met. Don't say something pretentious, Russell. Don't say something pretentious. Um, gosh, who could it be? I've never met them, and I've learned the most from them. Bill Hicks. Mm. Because I think that what I've got is you can be earnest and sincere and prioritize humor you can be passionate on stage you can be sort of sexually demonic mm. you can be a good comedian yeah yeah there are, everybody i know who loves bill hicks has like a favorite routine or a favorite joke that they're just like my god what where did he come up with that do you have something like that i, I quite like uh 
the sort of terminally ill stuntman, like uh, like use it. Like, hey, Doc, why have you dressed my grandmother up as a mugger? Shut up, quiet, get off the set. Push it towards Chuck. Push it towards Chuck. <laughs> like a, like a, that's sort of, sort of a, quite a pure old routine. I love his stuff on like selling arms to mm. people that we're in war with. The famous, uh, you know, pick up the gun routine. Like, uh, I, I mean, he's, I think he put it so clearly, so beautifully, so passionately. Mm, mm. The book is Recovery, uh, Freedom from Our Addictions. Russell Brand, thank you for coming in. Thanks, Todd. I loved that. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. As always, that's still me. Fox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. This week's episode was recorded at the wonderful podcast studio at Village Workspaces in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Che Brooks. If you could take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you're listening to us, it would really help us. It helps us in terms of finding new listeners, making sure we keep getting great guests. And uh, I really feel like you have helped us out a lot. You've given us some great reviews. It's just like I read all of them, even the ones that, that don't like the show as much. And I, I take a lot from them. And I, I appreciate your your criticisms and, and compliments. So please keep them rolling in. If you you know don't want to publicly share those, you can always email me at Todd at Vox.com or the podcast at ityi.podcast at Vox.com. That's it ye podcast at vox.com. You can also tweet me at TVOTI, which is on Twitter. Uh, no guarantees that I'll see it because things kind of fly by there, but you could you could give it a shot. We'll be back next week with somebody else from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody that I think is pretty interesting. And until then, I mean, are you fucked? I don't know. Maybe. I, I, I am. I am.